Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Convocation. My name is Jan Bender-Shetler, and I'm the Director of Global Education and the SST program at Goshen College. And I am so happy today to introduce you to my colleague, Sarah Augustine, a Pueblo Tewa descendant who is co-founder and executive director of the Dismantling of the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition. She is also the co-founder of the Suriname Indigenous Health Fund, where she has worked in relationship with vulnerable indigenous peoples since 2005. She has represented the interests of indigenous community partners to their own governments, the Inter-American Development Bank, the United Nations, the Organization of American States, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the, the World Health Organization, and a host of other international actors, including corporate interests. In 2011, she wrote the World, she co-wrote the World Council of Churches Statement on the Doctrine of Discovery and its Enduring Impacts on Indigenous Peoples, and shared the creation in the creation of the Ecumenical Indigenous Peoples Network. She is a columnist for the Anabaptist World and co-hosts the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast with Sherry Hostetler. She has written for Sojourners, The Mennonite, Anabaptist Witness, Response Magazine, and other publications, as well as a variety of academic journals. A sociologist, she has taught at Heritage University, Central Washington University, and Goshen College, where she taught the Global Issues course for our first Navajo Hopi SST in summer 2021, and will teach it again remotely in the upcoming SST this summer, which is followed by six weeks in Arizona, and there's still space, so sign up now. She lives in Washington State, so she's a long way from home, and serves in a leadership role on multiple boards and commissions to enable vulnerable people to speak for themselves in advocating for structural justice. She and her husband, Dan Peplow, and their son live in the Yakima Valley of Washington. Hmm. And she is the author of the book, which you see up here, The Land is Not Empty, Following Jesus in Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. We are so honored to have her here at Goshen College and in the Goshen community this week, talking to student faculty and church groups and helping us to discern the institutional and individual response to these issues of structural justice. Sarah is also a warm and welcoming person that is a joy to interact with. So after convocation, please join us in the fellowship rooms just down the hall for coffee and pastries and an opportunity for more conversation. In the fellowship rooms after convocation, there will also be an opportunity to actively get involved in this work of creating more just relationships. Amazingly enough, today is the day, probably right now, when the Supreme Court is hearing a legal challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which you may not have heard of. But in 1978, this much-needed law established the basic requirements to protect Native American children from continued forced removal from their families, tribes, and tribal culture. And if you know something about the history of Native American relations, you know that is 
a very long-term and difficult uh, history. Um, the challenge to this law is thus a challenge to tribal sovereignty. Indigenous families, leaders, singers, dancers, traditional practitioners, elders, knowledge keepers, youth and allies from all over are respectfully demonstrating support for ICWA on the steps of the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. this week and today as we are gathering here. So after convocation, you are invited to demonstrate support for ICWA by making handmade signs and gathering on the lawn between the church chapel and Main Street. Jane Ross Richer has poster board and pens available in the fellowship rooms during the coffee time. The purpose of this demonstrate demonstration is to bring to attention, to educate people, to show support for this current law that protects indigenous sovereignty, and we hope you can join us. So now, please join me in giving a warm Goshen College welcome to Sarah Augustine, who will be speaking on... Good morning. It's such a pleasure to be here with you all this morning. I want to begin by introducing myself. Um, I'm Sarah, and uh, I'd love for you to refer to me as Sarah. I am coming to you this morning from the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation, the Yakima Reservation, where I live with my family as a guest and a visitor there. I want to acknowledge at this time um, the elders and the Yakima people who have shepherded that land and their sacred waters for, for untold generations. I live on that reservation, but I'm not a Yakima woman. I'm actually um, a Tewa descendant. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. So my traditional homeland is in what is now known as Northern New Mexico. Um, but I, I am not a member of any tribe. And I'd like to talk with you a little bit about how that came to be. When the census comes around every 10 years or so and I have to mark what my race is, I say that I'm Native American because that's what I am. That's my race. However, I'm not a member of any tribe as a result of the forced removal of indigenous children from their families and their homelands and their peoples, their language and spirituality and ways. Um, I am the daughter of a person who was removed at birth. So my father was removed from his family at birth and I'm gonna talk with you a little bit about that this morning. And so I wanted to let you know that while I claim the lineage of my grandmother, this young woman who lost her son at birth, a Tewa woman, a woman of the round earth from the Nambe Pueblo in what is now known as Northern New Mexico, I'm proud to stand as a descendant of this woman as a descendant of my father, a little infant baby who was taken away from that young woman. 
and put into an institution, a Catholic institution, for all of his childhood. I stand here before you today as a descendant of these people showing up for justice today. So I am an indigenous woman, that is to say, my race is indigenous, but I'm not a member of a Pueblo or a registered member of a tribe because of forced removal. And I'm, I wanna explain that to you because it's important to understand that tribal designation is a political designation. So Native American tribes are governments, much like states are governments, and they have sovereignty over the people who are within uh, their constituency. And so for me to be a member of a tribe, I would have to be acknowledged by a tribal government. Therefore, my status, my, my political status, is a displaced person, a person who is displaced from my home. Specifically, the United Nations calls this internal displacement. So I'm an internally displaced person in my own country. So the Indian Child Welfare Act was created to protect children from this kind of fate that my father faced. Um, in 1978, Congress did a study to examine why one in four Native American children at that time were living outside uh, the homes and lands um, and custody of their parents. 25%, one in four Native American children were um, removed and put in foster homes um, across the country, often hundreds of miles away from their kin. So Congress did a study and found that of those children, 25% of the Native American population, 90 to 95% of them were in non-Native homes. This is a very effective strategy for removing indigenous peoples from their lands. In the United States, um, we have had a variety of policy eras to remove indigenous peoples from their lands, starting with removal, removing indigenous people from the eastern part of the United States and pushing them south of the Mississippi, the reservation era, further shrinking their homelands by putting them on often the least desirable land, um, the allotment era, which further shrunk uh, Indian reservations, um, where much of those lands were sold as surplus, but of all of those eras, by far the most effective way to remove indigenous peoples from their lands is through child removal, starting with the boarding school system, and then after the boarding school era and even throughout the boarding school era, removing indigenous peoples from their families, kin, and homelands um, into foster care. And that's my story. That's, the, that's my origin story, um, to be removed. The Indian Child Welfare Act was created to help Native American children stay in their homelands. At the time that the study was done in 1978, the primary reason Native children were removed from their homes was neglect. And this was a code word for poverty. 
because they were living in environments and in cultural settings that were, that were not well understood by the dominant culture. They were considered to be inappropriate as an environment to raise a child, and these children were removed. The Indian Child Welfare Act said, if a child must be removed, they should be placed with kin. And this became the basis for, for, um, for child protection across most of the United States. Um, the Indian Child Welfare Act is considered to be the gold standard policy for keeping children united with their families. Reu reunification is the goal. So the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, says the first preference is for Native American children to stay with their kin. If there can't be a kin placement, if there aren't any extended relatives where a child could go, then they should be placed with another member of their tribe. And if they can't be placed with another member of their tribe, they should be placed, the third preference, is for another Native American family. And if all of those are extinguished, then a Native American child could be placed with a white family or could be adopted by a white family. But the goal is to help Native American children remain in their homeland with their culture and their language and their people. And this law that was put in place in 1978 is now under attack. And in fact, it has been challenged more times in the United States than the Affordable Care Act. Have you guys heard of the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, it's been, that's been challenged a lot of times, but not as many times as ICWA. ICWA has been challenged over and over and over again. And this challenge is saying that there is racial discrimination happening because of ICWA, because indigenous children are being categorized by race, when in fact, ICWA protects children who have tribal designation, so they are a member of a tribe. And perhaps most importantly, it gives their tribe the right to have a say in their placement. So tribal elders and leaders are the ones that get to determine what's in the best interest of that child when they're placed. And so with the removal, if, if the Indian Child Welfare Act is removed, it will, it will turn back 120 years of case law related to Native American sovereignty. So this is a really big deal. And I guess I want to reflect on it in thinking about my own life story. And if ICWA had been in place when my father was an infant, would he have been able to remain in a home um, where they were speaking his own language, where he had access to his kin, where he had access to his culture, where he had access to the sacred lands of his people? He had none of those things. And I, I want to tell you that in my experience growing up, his inability to have access to those things was devastating. And I want to tell you why. My culture is important to me and I care about it. But it's not because I wish I had a deeper sense of culture. It's because my father struggled um, with mental illness and addiction and um, incarceration throughout my life. So I grew up in an environment of poverty and violence and chaos, 
as a result of child removal. When we talk about these things, like policy errors towards indigenous peoples, we often think, oh yeah, that happened you know, a long time ago. But it's happening now. <laughs> it continues to happen now. The effort to remove indigenous peoples from their lands is going on now. I want to tell you about another situation that's going on that actually also has the attention of the Supreme Court. And this is um, Resolution Copper is putting in uh, the largest copper mine in the history of the United States in the desert in Arizona. Have you heard about this? Could you raise your hand if you know about Resolution Copper? I know some of you do. In fact, I also want to ask, I'm just, just put you on the spot here, if you are on the cross-country team, if you would stand up. Look at them all together. Let's give them a hand. The cross-country team has been running in solidarity with the people, um, the stronghold Apache who are standing up for this place in the Arizona desert and the sacred waters there. The stronghold Apache are the people that are standing up for the land and sacred waters where this copper mine will go in. The, the mine itself has estimated it will take a billion gallons of water just to get that ore to the surface in the Arizona desert. There will be a pit that is a mile long and it will be collapsed 100 feet into the earth um, essentially destroying that ancient aquifer. And who do you suppose will be impacted by that? Do you think it will just be the San Carlos Apache? Phoenix, Tucson, all the humans and four-legged ones and winged ones, all the creatures will be impacted by that. But who's standing up for that? The stronghold Apache. They're standing up for life and opposing um, this mine that will be so devastating to the environment. And I wanted to acknowledge the cross-country team because the cross-country team here at Goshen has been running in solidarity with them, a running people. And I want to thank you for that. You're standing not only with a stronghold Apache, but with all people and all life as you're running for the preservation of life. And I want to thank you for that. True solidarity is doing more than engaging in symbolic acts. It's crossing the line from being an observer to being a participant, to truly acknowledging that we are all interdependent, that what happens to one impacts every other, that for our own survival, we must collaborate and work together for all for all of us and for all of creation, especially now when we face um, the impacts of climate change, which is a symptom of taking for granted the life support systems of Earth upon which we all depend. I'm, I'm here to ask you actually to stand in solidarity with indigenous peoples and with each other and with all of creation by crossing that line in the recognition that as environmental degradation occurs in big extractive industry projects like Resolution Copper's Mine, and 
um, when we protect children, when we stand together and stand up for children who face removal without the protection of Indian Child Welfare Act, you're actually standing in solidarity with yourself, with your own community, with all of us in the human family and the family of creation. It's such a privilege to be here with you in Native American History Month, and I wanna thank you for the opportunity to listening to my words, for the opportunity for me to speak words that you're hearing, and I look forward to joining you outside as we together, um, those who are willing, stand together with and for um, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I hope that you're all eager to have some individual words with Sarah and continue the conversation. We have got coffee and pastries and lovely things in the fellowship room. So join us there and there'll be things to, to make signs if you want to join us in support of the Indian Ch Child Welfare Act. So thank you so much and you are dismissed. <laughs>